Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, thanks for uh, listening. Um, today's episode is, uh, I think it'll be pretty interesting for most of you, uh, talking with Tad Collister. Um, primarily, we start kind of getting his thoughts on marriage. Uh, turns out he is for it. Um, but then we kind of get into how diff- how people feel the spirit differently and things like that and kind of church culture versus church doctrine, touching on that here and there as well. Um, among many other things, random questions peppered throughout, things like that. Tad's been a uh, friend of mine for a while, and uh, so I found this discussion to be pretty fun. Tad and I have always had a good back and forth. My sister married one of his sons and um, just kind of known him for a while. And I've always enjoyed my time talking with him, so I figured maybe record an episode of us talking and put it out there for everybody. For those of you who may not be as familiar with Tad as others, um, he wrote The Infinite Atonement, which is probably one of the most popular church books out there, um, at least certainly in modern times, and among a few other books, and we touch on that very lightly at the beginning, but that's a little bit who Tad is. Um, The sound is okay. You can probably hear us okay, I think, but it's quiet because I was having some mic issues, and so we had to record on one mic and just kind of keep it in between us, and so that's probably what you'll be struggling with. But anyway, hope you enjoy it. Uh, if you've been liking these, uh, that's great. I love that. Let me know if you have any feedback, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or whatever, any topics that maybe you want me to cover. It also always helps if uh, you subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating, share it with others if you like it. Just maybe there's something out there that somebody else could appreciate as well. But no worries, no pressure. Hope you all enjoy this episode. so much for taking time out to speak with me in this fairly juvenile podcast that I've set up that I have some friends listening to. So, Well, I'm glad to know you have some friends. That, that's <laughs> encouraging. And uh-huh. we, so everybody knows we love Harper and his older sister married uh, one of our sons. So that's right. We have that wonderful relationship there. Are you are you uh, sure you want them to know that I'm even s- sort of associated with you? Well, it's distant, so I acknowledge <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, Ted, you've written a, a, a few books. I mean, a total of, at this point, you're running at five, is that right? Actually, six now. Six now. Six mm-hmm. is the newest that's yet to be published. Two yet to be published. Two yet yes. to be published. Okay. Well, that's magnificent. Um, one of your books is obviously probably the most one of the more popular books in the church whether or not you want to admit it I'm not going to even let you respond to that Um, but I believe it's coming 
close to a million copies sold, The Infinite Atonement. Whether or not you want to comment on that is totally fine. I get it. No, I, I think that would be more than, a lot more than it's been sold, but it's done well, yes. Is that right? Well, we'll maybe have to fact check that one later. <laughs> um, but I specifically wanted to have you on because I've talked about kind of my own experiences in living in Utah, being single, all the interesting caveats that come with that with being in the church. I think one of the things that people can point to directly is that being single in the church in Utah is that you kind of always have this grass is greener mentality. And I think that can be somewhat of a damning mindset, obviously, to be in and something that a lot of us, maybe some of, most of us have struggled kind of with that same thing, which, you know, you're always trying to find the next best thing. Um, and I wanted to get some of your thoughts kind of, um, and I, and I don't by no means want to associate you as some sort of expert for this type of... That's, that's good, <laughs> because I'm the least of the least when it comes to uh, dating. I was very timid and shy and probably not a very good dater. Yeah. Okay, so in other words, whenever you give me specific advice, I should never really take it that seriously? Well, that advice was for you, not for me, of course. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Well, and I, and I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit, kind of your views, and, and more specifically, the, you know, aspects of marriage that are worth striving for, for, you know, all young members of the church, all members of the church, they don't have to be young, but all members of the church, and kind of what marriage brings to the table, maybe as a member of church, maybe just as a general concept in life, and what it does for you, and maybe... Maybe, and I would be curious to know if you think there are any specific issues at hand that are coming into play with all this, of uh, the increasing dependence on social media and just devices in general that we have on each other. I don't know. There's a lot of different directions we can take this, but I'm certainly curious to get your thoughts on it. Well, if you'd been an attorney, that would be, I think, 22 questions in one, but I'll try to <laughs> respond the best I can. Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, they're not, you don't have to take any of these questions that specific, but just like I'm trying to get a sense of kind of what your general thoughts are for now, and then we can probably focus in on a few things. Well, uh, I've, I've maybe shared this before, but marriage was put in perspective for me when I was 17 years of age and uh, I was kneeling by my bedside one night in prayer and unbeknownst to me my mother was in the doorway and when I finished the prayer she said to me Tad are you praying that the Lord will help you find a good mate and I said wow mother I'm, I'm kind of into basketball you know and sports and school it's not really on my mind and she said, son, well, you should, because it will be the most important decision you'll ever make in this life. And then she left. But her words really struck me. And uh, so for the next six to seven years, I prayed that the Lord would help me find a good mate, because I knew that what she told me was true. That would be probably the most important decision I would make uh, in this life. And so I would just say everybody uh, needs to pray for things of eternal import and that should be one that should be on their mind every morning and evening for the Lord to guide them. 
And uh, so that's one thing I would say about marriage. Another thing that my wife uh, always says, and she'd be much better to interview than I would be, <laughs> I guarantee you. But she said, you have to find somebody that is satisfying to you both physically and uh, emotionally and spiritually. And uh, that sometimes people overrate that, sometimes they underrate it, but it is an important part. And I would say that uh, you have to find somebody that uh, you feel comfortable with, that you uh, like as a friend. And that was what uh, really appealed to my wife about my wife. When I first dated her, my very first date, it's kind of a last minute thing. I had to have a date that Sunday night at the fireside and as usual I had procrastinated and it was Sunday afternoon. And I called her actually, her apartment to ask out a roommate <laughs> who someone had said wanted to go out with me and I thought, well, she'll go with me at the last minute. But my wife, Kathy, future wife, Kathy answered the phone. I thought I'd really like to go with her. So I asked her and she said yes. And repeatedly she said, I don't know why I said yes. No decent young lady would say yes on Sunday <laughs> afternoon to a date that night. <laughs> but she did. And it was really the first time I really felt comfortable around a girl. I was kind of shy, probably awkward around them, but I actually felt comfortable around her. Why do you think that was? I'm curious. I think uh, partly because uh, we had common interests and it wasn't sports. She didn't like sports really that which much. Which you do. Which I love sports. Yeah. But uh, she loved the gospel. She uh, loved just talking about common things. She uh, was not trying to impress anybody, it was obvious of that. And I, I felt like I didn't have to try to impress her. I just felt in her presence, I could be myself. And so after the date, I asked her, uh, I of course procrastinated and asked her out the next week and she already had a date and she, she told me no. You know, and for me that was, that was, you know, worst thing that could possibly happen to a human being and my self-confidence was all gone about dating I thought I'll ask one more time so the next week I asked again and she said yes and later she told me she'd turned down two other dates how about that so uh, <laughs> but she of course didn't tell me that at the time and we went out on a Friday night and I said oh are you available Saturday night? She said, yes. We went out the next night. We went out the next night, three nights in a row. Wow. And my roommate said to me, wow, what's this all about? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I just enjoy being with her. And uh, then, after about four and a half months, very shy, I finally got the courage and I said, uh, I love you. And she said to me, I like you too. <laughs> I thought, what? You know, math, that's not what you call a quid pro quo. You know, there's, there's something missing there in equality. Was that as crushing as her turning you down on the second date or more so? Well, I think after about six months of counseling, I was able to recover from that. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. 
you know, I, I was able to recover. She said I, she wanted to be very careful. In fact, she reminds me that I said, I think I love you. And, uh, that you said I think I love you? Yeah, rather than I love you. So that was, But she knew she liked you. She didn't say I think I like you. Yes. She said I like you. Yeah, okay. she did. And uh, that ultimately led to our engagement after about six months of dating and about five months later getting married. And I think that uh, there really wasn't that big of an adjustment period for us after we got married. I think it was partly because we were basically on the same wavelength in terms of the gospel and in terms of having children, wanting to raise a family. And I knew that her, her chief goals in life were to be a good wife and a good mother. Those were her chief goals in life. Now, <clears throat> I don't have anything against people, women who work and so forth. But I think that if their chief goal is to be a good wife and a good mother, and then working is part of a necessity or for their creative outlets, that's fine. As long as it doesn't get in the way of the first and foremost objective of being a good wife and a good mother. Yeah. And if they can add those to it, then that's just fine and I totally understand. So kind of dissecting what it took for you to realize that she was somebody you wanted to marry. What are the components that you looked at specifically? Now, I know you mentioned very specifically her chief goals, being a good wife and a good mother. But outside of that, kind of zooming out a little bit, what is it about kind of, what were the components of her spirituality that you thought, this is at least reaching the threshold that is a requirement for what I'm looking for, or specifically emotionally, or intellectually, or any, anything. And maybe, the, maybe some of those do apply, some of them don't, I'm just curious. Well, I think emotionally, uh, she was very stable. She was optimistic, which I liked. She always saw the good in people. She was not one to talk negatively about people ever. She uh, just loved the gospel. You could tell by the way she talked. She wanted to be obedient, not because she had to or was trying to impress anybody. She just wanted to be obedient. That was part of her natural character and uh, she enjoyed being around people she was friendly she was outgoing I guess upbeat and all of those and and I mentioned already but she didn't try to impress people she would uh, not ever try to overestimate herself or her abilities or whatever she was just kind of what you saw and heard is what she was. She was very genuine, I would say, and that was very impressive to me. And besides that, she seemed even to be enjoy being around me, which, <laughs> of course, made me happy. Yeah, and surprised. Probably. And surprised. Probably, <laughs> yeah. right? That makes sense. I can relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so it sounds like maybe just kind of taking your experience and applying it to something like my own and among many other young singles that I know, maybe there's a lot of overthinking going on when it comes to trying to find specifically uh, a, a wife or a husband. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. 
And I think it has to be just kind of natural that it comes. That's the way I, it happened for me versus anybody else I dated. It was just kind of a natural thing. And I think, honestly, I think in this generation is that some people look for uh, the Hollywood type. They, they want the Hollywood beauty. And I found that if you, um, you look for somebody who's physically attractive to you, but also has the radiance of the gospel, they have a beauty that outstrips and outshines the beauty of what I would call the Hollywood queens. And I found that more and more as time goes on. There's a certain glow about them and a certain appeal about them that outshines the, uh, the glamorous, I would say, beauty that you might find in, in Hollywood. So, um, yeah, I guess those are just some comments. But I think your comment's right, is we, we overthink it sometimes. But I do think someone needs to be praying every morning and every evening to help them have good judgment and make wise decisions and open the door for them to find the right person. And I think that the Lord won't do everything for them. I think the Lord expects them to go out and try and find somebody. And that may require them to, uh, you know, make new friends. It may require them to be in settings that are not always uh, comfortable initially. But I think, you know, the Lord expects us to do our part if he's going to do his part. And that also may require us to make changes. You know, my wife always says, you know, we look for the perfect spouse, but, quote, you don't, no one's perfect, but you might find the one that's kind of perfect for you, but you have to strive to be that kind of perfect person yourself so that you can have a, uh, an equal matching. So I think we constantly ought to be asking, what can I do to be a better person, to be prepare myself. We prepare ourselves, you know, to go on missions. We talk about all the preparation, but there also ought to be preparation to be a good husband and the preparation to be a good father or mother. And uh, that can be part of our prayers too, I think, and our efforts. So you kind of mentioned how you have to put in the work, right? You can't, nothing's just going to fall in your lap. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. This is an experience that somebody I knew had um, where she had dated this guy uh, three times. The third time he came back roaring. After he had broken up with her, he came back every time. The third time specifically saying, I felt like I've gotten an answer and I feel like we're supposed to get married and that was like kind of very very clear cut and then when she decided that she would give him a third chance he then all of a sudden felt like he needed another answer so I'm I, and, and it ended up not working out and it was very unfortunate for everybody involved and I'm curious what role should the spirit kind of in revelation play in this process versus how much of it should be faith and and in this case, this case might be a little unique because he said he received an answer and then demanded another one, which seems fairly faithless in my mind, but that's maybe just my opinion. But what's, what's the ratio there or balance that maybe somebody needs to take into account? 
Well, I, I would say one thought is that uh, sometimes, particularly more so among uh, men than women, as men will say, I've had a revelation that, uh, you know, I should marry you. Mm-hmm. And oh, so that doesn't work then? As far as I'm concerned, <laughs> that has no binding effect whatsoever upon the woman. Mm-hmm. She's entitled to her own revelation and is not bound by him whatsoever in whatever he says. They're both entitled to equal revelation in this regard. But I think revelation's a, a struggle in most cases. And I think the Lord expects it to be a struggle. It's like somebody joining the church. I, I think in most cases, it's not just one night an angel comes to them or a revelation comes to them. They're constantly studying the scriptures and they're having the missionaries over and they're meeting members of the church and they're going to church and trying to live the commandments and then maybe they take the next step and pay tithing and that revelation usually comes like the Lord says, line upon line, precept upon precept. And I think it's the same in dating. I think the conviction that someone's the right one comes line upon line, precept upon precept. And it's a combination of our actions, our reason, and the Spirit all working together. And where, where does faith fall into play there? I think faith is, uh, I think, a combination of all those factors. Faith comes from acting, from reasoning out, and feeling the Spirit. And I think as all of those things happen, that gives us greater faith that this is the right person for us. It's almost like it becomes exponential. I think so. I think so. I think it's like the Book of Mormon. You know, you have faith in the Book of Mormon. Well, how did that come? Well, I started to read it, and I studied it, and I talked about it with other people, and I lived the teachings, and I prayed, and all of those things worked collectively together to uh, help me have faith that this is the Word of God. And I think... You know, sometimes people think that it's just a spiritual experience and nothing else. Well, Paul used to say when he taught the gospel, come let us reason together. I think the Lord expects you to use every single source and power you can to invite revelation into your life. And if you don't do it, you minimize the revelation you get. He expects you to act. He expects you to question. He expects you to reason. He expects you to test different situations and to ask his help. But I think that if you don't do your homework, I think it was, you know, President Irene who said the best way to get revelation is, I think President Lee told him, is you gotta do your homework first. Yeah. Dating's part of doing your homework. Um, that actually reminds me too, kind of something you see a lot is the, and this is a little, transitioning a little bit out of marriage, the context of marriage at least. But when it comes to receiving revelation and feeling the Spirit, it, it seemed like growing up, at least for me, there was this talk of a distinct burning uh, or just type of, a, a, this real physiological aspect to feeling the Spirit, which as I got older, I realized that I felt the Spirit in other ways. No, have I felt the burning? I have. Like I, I actually have felt things in my chest where I can kind of more relate to that description 
But that's not the only way I felt the Spirit, and it's actually not the most common way I felt the Spirit. And one thing that was really beneficial to me growing up, um, and it was really kind of on my mission, I think, that I figured this out, and it was certainly after that where I really started to practice this a little bit more, pay attention to it more, um, was that I felt the Spirit in a way where it was more kind of motivating, it was optimistic, I had this love not only for myself, but for everybody else. And that, to me, was a big aspect of the Spirit operating in my life. And it felt like that was never anything that I was told growing up. And, and at least if it was, it was lost on me. And so I find that interesting that uh, people find, feel the Spirit in different ways, but why is it that there seems to be an emphasis on kind of that burning aspect, the physiological reaction there? Well, I actually just wrote an article in the church news, which I'm sure you read before this uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 interview. Yeah. I may have to turn the mic off, but we'll get to that. <laughs> because I, I agree with you. I don't think we do a great job in teaching our children how to recognize the Spirit. And I think I had some of the same feelings you did, that it came by a burning in the bosom. And I think, honestly, I've really only felt that real, real burning once, and I felt it in the mission field when I was bearing my testimony to somebody. But it is interesting in the early days of the church that the Lord teaches other ways to recognize the Spirit. And I think there's multiple ways. In fact, Galatians talks about the fruits of the Spirit. And one of the most important things we can do as teachers and parents is connect the dots between the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit. And as you start going through the scriptures, you find out, well, one fruit of the Spirit is that we have a peace about something. That was what Oliver Cowdery had. The Lord said, you know, Oliver, you're asking for another witness. Don't you remember the night I spoke peace into your mind? What greater witness can you have from God? Well, in the same section, it also says, and also says, and Oliver, I enlightened your mind. That was a witness unto you that you knew it was true. So sometimes our minds are enlightened with new ideas and thoughts. We say, wow, you know, the plan of salvation. Like when we taught our son Nathan about the plan of salvation, when he was a teenager, his response was, why doesn't everybody believe that? He was just enlightened his mind that that's true, that's right. So one way is to enlighten our minds. Another way is through peace. Another, which you mentioned, we're motivated to do things, is an intent to do good, to be a better person. Or sometimes it says our heart will enlarge, meaning we'll be more loving and kind and thoughtful. Or another method the scriptures teach us is that just joy will come to our life. We'll be happy, we'll be optimistic because we feel the Spirit. So I think you make a very good point. One of the greatest services we can provide, I think, as teachers, particularly as parents and teachers of the youth, is to help them recognize that there are multiple fruits of the Spirit and when those come into their life, that's the spirit working. In fact, I think missionaries sometimes miss that opportunity when they teach the joke. I think there's two great occasions when the spirit comes when you teach. One is when you teach the atonement, and other ones you teach the first vision. And you teach that in the first lesson. And I think that's an important time for missionaries to say to the investigators, how did you feel? And sometimes investigators will say, well, it's the first time I've heard about this. I'd like to learn more and missionaries miss the opportunity and they say oh well, we'll teach you more in future lessons when they yeah. should have said yes we will teach you more but how did you feel yeah. and they'll say well I, I felt a desire to learn more or I felt a peace and that's a great opportunity to connect the dots and say you know what that was 
That was the spirit. Every time you feel a peace, or every time you feel an intent to learn more about this, that's a witness to you that the spirit's operating on you. So yes, I think we can do a much better job in teaching the connection, connecting the dots between the spirit and all the fruits of the spirit that the scriptures talk about. Yeah, yeah, well, I appreciate that. That's that's exactly kind of what I was hoping for is that that, that you'd kind of address this that and. And even though you know I read that church news article, I'll definitely right. read it again. I know you will. I know you were just repeating what was in it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, it's called the church news, Harper. The church news, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And that's, is that, do they have a Twitter account? Maybe They even have it online. That <laughs> younger generation. Oh, on the internet? <laughs> I'll have to look into that. Um, I, along those same lines, because it seems like how we feel the spirit was projected in a manner that seemed almost like doctrine when I, when I was growing up. And now granted, this is my own experience. So I'm not necessarily saying this was a, an at large church standard. Now, when I talk to other people, they happen to have similar experiences as me. So maybe, but basically what I'm getting to is that it seems like it was more kind of a cultural aspect of the church where it was like, when you feel the spirit, You'll feel this burning inside and it will be undeniable and it will just be this big revelation when I never felt that as a kid. And a lot of people I know have never felt that as a kid. So I'm curious how kind of expanding out on that with the differences between church culture and church doctrine. And this is actually a question that a good friend of mine, we were talking about recently. How do you identify the intersection of church culture versus church doctrine? Well, um, maybe this is a, an oversimplified answer, but that's why we have the scriptures and the prophets, is to teach us the doctrine. And all of those evidences of the Spirit we just thought about are where? They're in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the scriptures, that's why it's so important to study the scriptures because they teach us the correct doctrine. And once you know the correct doctrine, it helps it separate from church culture that's not consistent with the doctrine. And that allows you as a parent and a church leader and teacher to try and bring the culture in harmony with the doctrine. And we all have the duty to try it. Uh, what I was going to I mean, to your point, you said this might be an oversimplification, but in this case, I do think it's probably Occam's razor, right? Where the most simple explanation really is the most true. I think that's absolutely right, is that when you understand the doctrine, you actually are not only understand the culture, but are able to convey the culture in a way that matches up best with doctrine. Because one thing that you see a lot, at least when I say you, I guess I mean me, one thing that I see a lot is that the main problem that people have issue-wise with the church isn't with its doctrine so much as it is with the culture. And they pinpoint specific issues like, I don't like how the church does this, that, or the other. And primarily, I find myself in conversations like this every now and then where I say, yeah, I understand you're correct with that, but here's the thing, that's not doctrine. That's not something that came from the top down and said, we're gonna have our members act this way or have our bishops respond this way. It's, it's more kind of the cultural for better or for worse, and, and in this case, obviously for worse, that the culture is manifest in a way that's 
you know, less than desirable for a lot of people looking at it. And so that's why I feel like it's somewhat of an important issue to be addressed. But anyway, um, I think we can probably wrap it up here pretty soon. But I did want to ask you a couple more questions. Uh, okay. And they're kind of, they're random, sort of. But uh, what is, uh, what have you viewed as one of the most inspirational personal gospel books outside of the standard works for you? Um, well, I would say one of them was not written by a member of the church. It was The Life of Christ by Canon Farrar. And I know Farrar. I yeah. It's maybe the most eloquent uh, book on the life of Christ that I've ever read and for somebody who was not a member of the church he was certainly guided and touched by the spirit and as a result of that Elder McConkie quotes him multiple times in his promise of Messiah you quote him as well in the infinite atonement yes I do yes I do and so from somebody who was not a member of the church I love that, that book really quickly do you know I'm sure you do but the which church Farrar was a part of it was the Church of England. Yeah, as well as C.S. Lewis. Yes. Which makes me think that there must be something very interesting with what they're teaching there about the about Christ, right? It does seem that they are at least emphasizing on some really important and good things about the nature of Christ. Yeah, so it just shows a lot of other people can have good truths. And Absolutely. They can, you know, they can get revelation within a certain degree, and and we should be benefit from that to the extent we can. I think uh, I, I loved Elder McConkie's Promised Messiah. I thought, honestly, in some places it was repetitive, but uh, overall I thought he had magnificent insights and was, you know, uh, an incredible doctrinal scholar that I appreciated. <clears throat> I loved uh, reading the autobiography of Farley P. Pratt. And you just get a feel for the sacrifices these people made. He'd been on missions for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. And he gets called on another mission to go to the East. And <clears throat> he talks about how he was hoping that he would stay at home for a while. But he would always respond to the call of the Lord. And he goes East. And of course there in Arkansas he becomes a martyr for the church. Knowing essentially that it was going to happen. And uh, in fact, I just reread that account. He he saw it coming. He he knew he knew that his life was uh, short to be. Really? Yes, he did. In fact, he was killed by the ex-husband of his twelfth wife. Uh, <clears throat> I, I I think I remember hearing that, but it, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. And uh, I I would say there's a lot of church books I've really. Loved by some of our modern day apostles that have touched me. Uh, I've loved reading the lives of uh, about the prophets. Uh, loved reading the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith. They were so insightful. The discourses of Brigham Young that were insightful. Uh, anyway, those are just a few to name some. That's great. Okay, another question for you. Um, this was from a friend. 
who said, We view our gospel as a restoration instead of a reformation. How do you see our view of the atonement in comparison to other more traditional Christian religions? Well, I think that um, we are in the same wavelength uh, to a certain extent, and then we have additional knowledge. For example, others believe that Christ uh, died so that we might be resurrected. Others, uh, to some extent, believe that he suffered for our sins so that we might repent. Those are what I would call the redemptive qualities of the atonement. But I think that uh, the nature of his suffering, we get a much, we get not a third-hand account, which is, which is in the New Testament, we get a first-hand account in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, verses 16 to 19, where he himself, you know, talks about the suffering which caused even he a God, the greatest of all the trouble because of pain. We get a new insight into the suffering. We get insight that the suffering was not just for this world, but all the worlds of which he created in the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. And then we get the insight that the atonement was not only redemptive, as other churches believe, that, but that it brought about enabling powers. We get particularly in the Book of Mormon that he suffered for our afflictions and temptations so that he could comfort and strengthen us in Alma 7, which you get some in the Bible, but not to the extent in the Book of Mormon. And then the incredible one that he not only came to resurrect us and cleanse us, but to perfect us. And we get that particularly in Moroni chapter 10, that the Savior's atonement not only had the power to help us return to God's presence so the Christian faithfully, not only to return to his presence, but to become like him. And I think the atonement, because of the atonement, there's at least two avenues that are available to perfect us, at least two. One is the ordinances of the church. That the doctrine comes in section 84 tells us, therefore, in the ordinances there are the power of godliness is manifest. And those ordinances only have that power because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. The power to cleanse us, the power to give us the Holy Ghost and guide us to all truth, the power of the priesthood, the power of the endowment, and the power of the sealing ordinance, which is the ability to become like gods, as the 132nd section says. And because of the atonement, it cleanses us and therefore opens up the opportunity to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and all of the gifts of the Spirit. And what are the gifts of the Spirit? The attributes of godliness. Therefore, as we acquire the gifts of the Spirit, we acquire the attributes of godliness in our life. And that's why the Book of Mormon and other scriptures repeatedly tell us to seek after the gifts of the Spirit. Just don't be content with the one gift of the Spirit that mentions in your patriarchal blessing, but seek after them all. So I would say that the restoration confirms some of the truths that the Christian world has, which is wonderful, but adds upon them with these new insight into the extent of his suffering for all worlds and these wonderful enabling powers that allow the Savior not only to cleanse us, but perfect us so that we not only return to his presence, that's only half of it, but we can, can become like him so we can have the fullness of joy that he has. And that's the consummation of what his work was intended to do. Speaking of kind of 
you had mentioned how there are some underemphasized aspects to the atonement, it seems like, whether, you know, on purpose or not, in our religion and outside of our religion. Um, it's one that has kind of occurred to me seems to be the idea of how he can empathize with us. Because empathy is understanding. Because they've literally felt what you are feeling right now. And it doesn't seem like that's emphasized a whole lot in terms of how the atonement really is a huge, another big benefit to us, to say the least. Because he literally experienced what we experienced, any sin, any pain, any afflictions, trials, troubles, all that. So that, not just that he could save us from them, but also literally empathize with us and understand us in that moment. I mean, is that is that fair to yes, surmise? and I think that it's not only empathize with us, but he has remedies to help us. Sometimes it's to give us peace through it. Sometimes it's to comfort us. Sometimes it's to help lift the burdens like he did with Alma and his people. Sometimes it's to soften the hearts of others. And sometimes, when Joseph Smith was in Liberty Jail, and he was saying, you know, where art thou? You know, I need a little help here. And uh, what he does is he doesn't remove him from jail. Mm -hmm. He gives him an eternal perspective. And basically says, if you hang in there, you'll have, uh, you'll have exaltation. And so Joseph's in Liberty Jail, and he writes to the people, and therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power. And then we'll see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. So he said... I, I can endure it now because I understand this is just a small spectrum in eternity. And if I endure it, I can have exaltation. And to me, that's one of the beautiful things about the atonement. What it tries to tell us is once the atonement was performed, there is no external force that can prevent you from being exalted. There is no divorce. There's no loss of life, loss of job, disability that can prevent you from being exalted provided you keep the commandments and endure to the end. You, the, the atonement put us in the driver's seat. That's right. It's to our divine destiny. Yeah. That's right. Um, you kind of already touched on this, but just to kind of put it more directly, sometimes we get caught up as a church that the atonement is a backup plan after all we can do but when we're able to put it into the true perspective of that it is the plan, how does that kind of change, or how can that, I should say, change our thinking and actions? Well, I, to me, I've kind of tried to relate the plan of salvation, the atonement of Jesus Christ, and the doctrine of Christ, and say, how do those three relate? And to me, the plan of salvation is the plan as to how we can return to God and become like Him. The atonement of Jesus Christ, but that plan, that's just the plan that can get us there. The atonement's the vehicle that can get us there, but the vehicle can't get you there without a driver. And the driver is the doctrine of Christ. That's us. We have to have faith. We have to repent. We have to be baptized. We have to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost and endure to the end. And if we do, then we can use the full powers of the vehicle, the atonement of Jesus Christ to get us back to God's presence. And so it's a joint effort of the driver, us, so to speak, and the vehicle working together to get us back to God's presence to fulfill the plan of salvation. All right. Well, 
That about sums it up for me. I do. Well, I mean, what 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 is the life changing advice that uh, you were just so keen on giving me about getting married? Well, stop fooling around. <laughs> Get out there and be dating every day. <laughs> every day. Every day. Every day. Yeah, making friends. <laughs> Get out there and start dating and do your duty. All right, that's. And that's we cool. love you, and we're glad to have you as a shirt tail relative. <laughs> And uh, you're, so the book that's about to come out, just to kind of close it out here, I mean, from what I understand, this is why you were dying to come on my podcast, so you could, <laughs> so you could tell this book, right? Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> that was a very cheap shot, and I'm not even going to respond to that. <laughs> Remind me what the name is again. It's America's Choice, a nation under God or without God. And when should we expect that one to be published? Well, it's a national publisher that it's with, and I don't honestly know the exact date, but I would guess about May time. This year? Yes. That's exciting. All right. Well, Tad, thank you so much. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you, and you owe me big time after this. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. I'll, I'll let you beat me in pickleball. How does that sound? <laughs> well, that'd be a normal occurrence. <laughs> Maybe something new. All right. All right. <laughs> There's an hourglass my table I'm watching as everything's changing my mind goes to a different time old love I remember falling so madly there must have been magic in the valley and a rhythm in the night cause I could almost see it did you fade right takes time